Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you guys today to worship together as two churches that love each other and are for each other. Heartland Church, Red Tree Church, you guys are awesome. I, I said this at the beginning, but I feel like this is one of the cool silver linings of this pandemic is that it makes it easier for us to come together as churches that love each other and are on the same team and actually experience a time of worship together. I hope you guys are being built up by what is going on in this video, what's going on in the chat today as we kind of mingle together as God's people. I'm, I'm stoked. This morning we're, we're starting a series in the book of Esther, and it has been a little bit of a time coming, getting here, and I am, I'm, just, I'm just ready to get into this. Esther is this really well-known story that, that ends up not being preached through kind of systematically very often. And, and the reason is, just being blunt, it has a lot of unique challenges for preaching, but I really think that overall this, this message that God has preserved for us in the book of Esther is going to be a challenge and an encouragement for both our churches this summer as we navigate through it. So, so I've got a couple tasks in front of me this morning. I'm going to do my best to give us an introduction and overview to the book as a whole, to really pull out some of the context, pull out some of the, the major themes, some of the theological concerns of the whole of the story and kind of give us a singular interpretive lens to walk through this story together. But then we're going to actually walk through the introduction to the story. I'm actually going to read that in just a second. I think God has something really cool for us in this that'll end up kind of being the focus. It'll kind of point us to where we're going with the whole book. And after that, we're going to end our time with a really famous teaching from Paul in his letter to the Romans. So, I'm going to ask you guys to give me a little bit of a pass because I'm going to be a little just kind of heady on the front end, but stick with me. I think it'll be worth it to make sure we're all on the same page as we dig through this. I'm going to read the opening text of the book first thing, and then I'll pray and we'll jump into this. So we're in the book of Esther, starting in the first verse of the first chapter, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there. It says this. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of all his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cord of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of, of, of poffery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was accorded to this edict. There 
there is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all of the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehemam, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, yes, went straight through all of those, didn't even pause, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure for all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Sheltar, Adathma, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day... The noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And this is the word of the Lord. A strange one, but a word from the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we take a few moments to to try and get our heads and our souls into the space of this story, to to step back to, to what you were doing in this time for your people, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our discipler and you would be our interpreter and you would illuminate the text that you wrote and you preserved for us. We ask that you would make yourself really just clearly known through your word, that we would dig through this and and find the beauty and freedom and truth and power of the gospel proclaimed in it. Holy Spirit, give us soft hearts willing to hear from you, willing to to be brought to the truth, even when it's painful. And God, we ask 
that your word would spur your kingdom, your people into action, that we would be about the work of your kingdom here and now. Jesus, we love you. We trust you for these things. So we pray them in your name. Amen. Now, this is already a juicy and interesting story. Before we even get into it, right? Like you read this, this front end and you're like, okay, we are definitely setting up like a soap opera of the Bible. But before we get into those sweet, juicy, juicy details, I wanna take a few moments and talk about the book as a whole. So Esther is amongst what is called the shorter history books of the Old Testament. Now, don't let that classification fool you, right? This isn't a history book in the modern sense of kind of dispassionately reporting facts, right? Like Esther is, is at its base a narrative. It's, it's a story. And it's written with structure and wit and irony. And here is where us as modern Western readers will, will get a little uncomfortable, right? Because, because this is a well-crafted, written story. Now, what I'm not saying is that the events of Esther didn't really happen. But what we do have to remember is that ancient peoples didn't have the same concerns that we do when writing. A history writer in this day wasn't concerned with dispassionately reporting the facts. They were concerned with preserving the story of their people. So they took literal and true stories and told them in ways that helped burn them into the collective conscience and memory. This is Esther. Now, for literal centuries, biblical scholars have seriously questioned the historicity of this book because of several factors that really just kind of come across as strange or, or out of line. I'm not going to detail them here because A, they're boring, and B, you have access to Google. Uh, but, but, but suffice to say this. As time has progressed, issue after issue that has been brought up concerning the historicity of Esther has been validated by archaeology and by other discovered literary sources. Thus, though this is written as this really brilliant narrative, and, and you will notice that if you let yourself kind of take Esther as it presents itself to you, you'll notice that it's witty and it's structured and it flows and all those things. But in spite of that, we have zero reason to doubt the general historicity of this story. Now, we have no idea who wrote Esther, and we don't know exactly when it was written. Christians traditionally attribute the book to either Mordecai or Esther or Ezra. Jews traditionally attribute it to a group of post-exile rabbis who were going about the work of preserving, or preserving some of the, the exile history. The truth is, we just don't know, and we have no way of knowing who the human author of Esther is. But what we do know is that this is divinely inspired scripture that has been supernaturally preserved for you and I by the Spirit himself for countless generations. 
And so the reality is that even though we may not have an earthly author written underneath the title of the book, we know that we can trust the true author of Esther, which is God himself. We don't know much about uh, the human author, but we know a good amount about the original audience. You see, Esther was written as a testament to God's faithfulness to his people post-exile. And guys, this is absolutely key for us understanding Esther. Esther takes place after what is called in Jewish history the exile and the return. So, so to give you kind of a super quick overview of this, remember, God himself supernaturally intervened in, in, the, in the history of Israel and formed unto himself a sacred people and a set-apart nation in the book of Exodus. This group of people were, were in bondage to literal slavery in, in, in Egypt, and God freed them. And at the Mount Sinai, he appeared to them and made a literal covenant and agreement with them and defined them as his people, right? This is the birth of the nation of Israel. And as their history progressed, uh, the, the history of Israel can really be biblically charted by them just over and over and over and over and over violating and walking away and forsaking the covenant they made with God at Sinai. And God, over and over and over and over and over in his grace, warning them of the consequences of forsaking that covenant. You see, at Sinai, God said, I freed you. You are no longer slaves. You are my people. I am your God. Stay faithful to me. I'll stay faithful to you. If you violate this covenant, if you step outside of this covenant, you will lose my blessing. You will experience wrath and pain and suffering. And Israel said, we get it, we got it, you're awesome, you're our God, we're your people. And from that moment on, they just began violating the covenant over and over. And God sent kings and prophets and leaders and priests who said over and over, Israel, you cannot do this. You made a covenant, you keep on violating it. There are consequences to these actions. And eventually, God allowed his people to be completely and utterly destroyed. And over the course of multiple generations through the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire, what was once the mighty nation of Israel, sacred and holy, set apart as a people for God, was wiped off the face of the planet. And by the time the Babylonians came along and destroyed Jerusalem, God's people were scattered around the world. You see, these empires enforced these forced deportations where they would remove people from their home nations and cities and plant them all over the empire to basically bring about enough just sorrow and enough confusion to quell potential future rebellions. But... In this period, known as the exile, God's people, through the preservation of the Spirit and the word of the prophets, kept themselves a people. God worked supernaturally to preserve his people, even in the midst of their exile. And, and just a few short generations later, 
The management gets shifted again, and all of a sudden, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And the new king of Persia has a new idea of how to handle all these subjects. He says, hey, you hated the Babylonians. They were pretty awful to you. How about I let you guys all go home? And not only will I let you go home, I will give you money to rebuild your homes and your cities and your temples. Aren't I a great king? Shouldn't you be loyal to me, right? And this process worked, right? This wasn't done just for the Jewish people. This was done all over the Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great started to put these reforms in place where he allowed conquered peoples to go home. And you can read about this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We read about the post-exile return where, where God's people are not only given permission, they're given resources to return to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and initiate temple worship again. Now, this brings us to some of the most pressing and painful theological questions of this period in God's people's history. So remember, the Jewish identity and the Jewish worship is built around the covenant at Sinai and it's built around the worship at the temple. Well, when when Israel is destroyed and Jerusalem falls, the temple is destroyed and the worship ceases, the sacrifice ceases, the the priests go away. And in exile, God's people moan and wonder and, and lament and say, are we still God's people? We know we've received this punishment, but is there still a covenant? Is there still a way to worship? And, and, and the prophets bring this message to them over and over. Yes, you are still God's people. He's going to do something new. Wait, remain faithful, continue to worship. And they, and they start to kind of eke out and learn this new way of worshiping and relating to God with no temple and no priests and no sacrifices. But when they're allowed to return home, all of a sudden, God's people divide. You see, we, we read in Ezra and Nehemiah about this beautiful story of God's people bravely and sacrificially leaving their homes and going back to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But the reality is most of them didn't go. The amount of Jews spread out over the Persian Empire was significantly larger than the amount of people who returned home. And and the reason is simple. God had blessed them in exile. They were prosperous. They were making money and building businesses and getting positions of power and authority within their communities. And so when the opportunity comes up to, to leave your successful community that you've lived in your whole life at that point and your successful business and, and go and live in a desolate wasteland where people will hate you and you'll have to live like survivor style as you rebuild your home from scratch and try and rebuild a city that didn't exist, a lot of the people just said, nah, not my thing, which raises this really interesting question. You see, Esther takes place right in the middle of this time period. It actually takes place between Ezra 6 and 7. So if you want to put this in a little bit of historical context biblically as you read Esther, read Ezra alongside it. And right between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, the the whole of this story in Esther happens. But you're left with this tension, right, where some of God's people have returned to Jerusalem and they are worshiping again. 
There are priests again. There are sacrifices again. There's, there's an altar again. And so these people are able to say really confidently, yes, we are living into the covenant. We are doing the things God appointed for us at Sinai to define our relationship. So then the Persian Jews begin to ask, rightly so, well, what about us? Are we still in the covenant? Is God moving on and just blessing and just being with these people who returned home? Or are we still included? Do we still matter? And by the way, this question would be so pressing to them on a day-by-day basis because they are such a minority They live in the the largest empire the earth had seen at that point with, with countless cultures and religious and political and philosophical ideas and they are just a small minority on the margin of life within the Persian Empire. Now, a lot of them were successful. A lot of them were wealthy. A lot of them were doing well. But Judaism as a culture, as a way of life, the kingdom of God pursuing the one true God was such a minority position. And one that that as we'll see as we work through Esther was often openly opposed. So Ezra and Nehemiah show this amazing answer to the question of what is God doing with his covenant people. Well, he's restoring, he's doing something new. He's, he's bringing things back. They can, they can still participate in the covenant. But Esther is the biblical answer to this second pressing theological question. What about the rest of God's people? What about the ones who didn't go? This highlights, by the way, one of the most unique features of Esther as a book of the Bible. Esther never mentions the name of God from beginning to end. Never once in the book is anything specifically religious or covenant-centric or or even like God-centric mentioned in the book. It reads just like a story about people in a big city. You see, for the people of God still in exile, it felt very much like God was not present. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the sacrifice. They didn't have all these daily physical reminders of the reality of the covenant. All they had was themselves their family, whatever Jewish community was was in their city and whatever they knew of their faith from their family before them. So it was really easy, really easy as the minority culture on the margins to begin to just miss seeing God work. Because there wasn't anyone loudly proclaiming, right? Like, look how God is working here. Look what he's doing for you here. Look what he's doing for our people here. Like, these are just people living their lives in a pagan culture. Because I think this is part of why Esther is so important for us as the church today. It gives this perfect picture of God's people living on the margins. I think I think it's just going to strike home for us. You see, although God is never explicitly mentioned in Esther, 
To say that he's not seen in Esther would just be foolish. See, this is one of the things that's so powerful about this book and the way it's written is that the whole book is built on this insane reversal. God's people are facing literal extinction and they're saved through a series of absolutely insane coincidences. Coincidences that that we as the audience know truly are the providential hand of God to preserve his covenant people. You see, the main theological thrust of the whole book of Esther is essentially saying, yes, of course, all of God's people are included in God's covenant. Just because they stayed in Persia doesn't mean they don't belong to him. He is their God. They are his people. He cares for them and blesses them and protects them and preserves them even when it looks like he doesn't. Even when he can't be seen. Even when he isn't felt, even when he isn't named, even when he isn't given credit, God is still sovereign and he's still working. The sovereignty of God is on display in this book. He sovereignly works in the midst of sin and the curse to bring about his kingdom purposes. Isn't this, by the way, isn't this just an amazing gospel truth that, that, that God himself, though he, though he never sins in his grace and in his power, he can use even sin of this world, even the curse of this world to bring about his good and perfect will? Well, what a God we serve. Esther is interesting in this sense. As a narrative, it describes tons of actions, all the the elements of the story, but it it gives very little comment on the relative, like, morality or the righteousness of the specific actions of the characters in question. We're going to talk about this a little over the course of the story. Like, Esther and Mordecai are, are not totally righteous or innocent participants in this story. They have their fair share of curse, and yet God is still sovereign and still uses everything they do, everything Haman does, everything the king does toward the end of his kingdom. Which brings us to the gospel message of Esther and really our text today, beloved of Jesus. This is how the gospel moves forward in our world. The world is broken and it is full of sin. People are fueled by self-interest and they will do all sorts of terrible things if they think it benefits them. We see this all day, every day in our nation, in our world, on the news, in our city, in our family, in our own hearts. But praise be to God that although he allows humanity to operate within its will, he still uses even our sinful wills to bring about his kingdom. Come on. Which brings us to the story today. I told you guys it was going to take me a minute to get there. We have this, this king in, the, in our introductory. It's, in our introduction, it's a story of, of decadence and debauchery. 
This King Ahasuerus, otherwise known, by the way, as King Xerxes I, really quick, for those of you interested, this is the same King Xerxes from the movie 300. So if you need to do like some historical research to make sure you're like up to date on Esther, it's, it's cool. You can tell him, you, you can tell him I, I said it's okay. Uh, but, but he's having this absolutely lavish party, right? He's brought in all his government and military officials for, for two very specific reasons. You see, Xerxes' rise to power was really shaky. When he took the throne, he immediately had to squash two major rebellions. And in his third year as king, it's really the first time that his rule has kind of become established, so to try and really secure his, his loyalty and his, his throne and all these things, he brings in his leaders from the entire kingdom and literally spends six months showing off. They are shown the extent of his power, his wealth, his generosity, etc. And by the way, this is, this is insanely important. I'm going to loop us in on probably the most important cultural difference between the world of Esther and our world today. This will be an absolutely necessary interpretive lens for you to really get the most out of this book. You see, Persia, like most of the ancient East, was an honor and a shame-based culture. So we don't, we don't fully grasp this idea as Westerners, we tend to determine our morality by kind of abstract moral principles. Something is right because it is right. It's wrong because it is wrong. The circumstances in the moment don't necessarily matter. But, but, but while abstract morals definitely existed in these ancient Near Eastern cultures, they were much, much, much more driven by the, the reality of honor and shame in the moment. Moral goods were largely determined by what brought about the most honor in the moment for an individual, a tribe, a nation, etc. And moral evils were largely determined by what brought about the most shame for the individual, the tribe, the nation, etc. To this end, Ahasuerus or Xerxes is setting up a six-month honor fest for himself. He wants all of his leaders to see exactly how glorious he is. Because this will not only secure their loyalty and, and secure the strength of his fledgling reign, but it also, it lets them just bask in his honor. At the end of the six months, he initiates this seven-day feast for every man in the whole city. Every dude, rich or poor, in all of Susa gets to feast on the king's generosity. Again, this is just a display of his honor to his people. The whole line about drinking uh, might strike you as strange, right? But this was also a sign of the king's generosity and his honor. He's basically having the biggest rager in history and every dude in the city gets to show up to his palace and eat and drink whatever the heck they want for seven days. No limits, no rules, no restraint. Party as much as you want. Do whatever you want. King Xerxes is awesome, right? Like that's where this is going. 
So there's seven days into this party when the king gets this brilliant idea. He, he wants his queen to come out and parade herself around for his guests. Now, again, right, this is all a part of displaying his honor. The, the king needs to have the best woman as his queen, right? Like he's the best warrior. He's the best leader. He's the most generous. He's the most rich. He also has to have the most beautiful, the most wise, the most perfect wife. Now, now keep in mind, right, in this world, women are essentially property, especially in the palace. Ahasuerus keeps a literal harem. We have no idea how many dozens or hundreds of women that he keeps as wives or concubines, but we know the number is astounding and extravagant. Now, there's debate here as to exactly how dehumanizing Ahasuerus' demand on Queen Vashti actually is. And I'm not going to get into that debate, but what's kind of the most likely understanding of the text is that he's demanding that she parade herself in front of his guests wearing nothing but her crown. This was all to further display her beauty as an extension of his honor and his glory as the king. She refused. Now, the story doesn't tell us why, and to be perfectly frank, to, to think of the queen standing up against dehumanizing behavior is strange. I mean, she was already his property, Maybe this was the straw that broke the camel's back, but we don't know. Whatever the reason, she refuses, and look at this, hear this, the king is shamed. And, and not just shamed, but shamed at a crucial time, at the crowning moment of his rager of a party to establish his power and the loyalty of some of his closest people, one of the closest people to him publicly shames him. This is a big deal. It breaks his authority, it breaks his power, it breaks his honor in front of his most powerful leaders and in front of the common men of the city. So he storms off with his advisors and they drink and discuss the problem. I could, I could comment a lot here, right, about a group of men going off by themselves to drink and complain about the women folk, but, but I feel like you probably all have enough imagination to get there on your own. These dudes are blasted. And, and, and they're worried that the queen will, will spark some sort of wave of rebellion amongst the wives of the kingdom. Now, bear in mind, that's incredibly unlikely. But it definitely further pokes at the shame the king is feeling for this slight. So to solve his issue, he issues a national decree that in one fell swoop divorces him from his wife, banishes her from his presence for life, and lets all men know that they are the bosses in their own homes and their wives better do what they say. In other words, the exact kind of law you'd expect a group of drunk men with too much power complaining about their wives to pass. And that's basically it. The story ends, or our text today, ends with this power vacuum. The king needs a queen to complete his look of power and authority. Now, most of you probably know where the story goes from here, 
But I don't want to get ahead of it. Because this is such an interesting lead-in to our story. This so perfectly sets up the major themes of the whole book. I mean, on the surface, God couldn't seem further from the intricacies of this story. It's, it's a whole story about a drunk pagan king who thinks he's awesome and invites tons of people to participate in debauchery to his own glory. He dehumanizes his wife and then punishes her for standing up for herself. I mean, could you have a more godless beginning to a story? And yet, we know. The, the, the audience knows the truth. In all this sin and in all this debauchery and all this self-glory, God is right there. He is under the surface, working through the whole thing, masterfully setting the stage for the whole story of Esther. Beloved of Jesus, even when your senses tell you that God is nowhere to be found, Esther reminds us he is right here, under the surface, working his will and advancing his kingdom. Paul famously said in Romans 8, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all things God, in his sovereign power, is able to work all things, even sinful and evil things, for the good of his people, for the advancement of his kingdom, and the furthering of his glory here on earth and in eternity. Beloved, we spent... We spend most of our time this morning in kind of this, this heady space, right, trying to wrap ourselves around and, and ready ourselves for this deep dive into this book of the Bible. And, and that's great, right? Like, that's important. But let's not leave this space this morning without spending a few moments to reflect on this needed truth. Our God reigns. He is sovereign. There is no evil, no suffering. There is no injustice. There is no illness. There is no fear, no power, no leader, no king, no anything that is so powerful as to circumvent his ultimate will. God is the only king that matters, and his throne is the only throne that matters, and he is at work here and now. And as you wade your way through a global pandemic and a society torn by racial injustice and economic fears and everything else going on in our society, it is, it is so easy to get caught up and distracted in news and fears and worries and wonder, where is God in the midst of all of this? Let me tell you, he is on his throne. 
Jesus Christ lived the perfect life and died an unjust death and rose from the dead in the power of the Spirit and ascended into heaven and sits on his throne, ruling over all of reality, and nothing will ever change that. And you and me, beloved of Jesus, we get to, we get to walk in this uncertain world, certain of that truth. Our God reigns. Our Jesus reigns. The power of Jesus is absolute. Jesus and his, the Jesus of the gospel that we preach, he is absolutely in control. Nothing changes that. No fear, no worries, no problems in our world. Nothing changes that. So we, we get to seek him and, and seek his mission and seek his kingdom in the safety of that truth. Beloved, we get to walk into a world that feels so uncertain and so devoid of the presence of our God, and we get to walk in the confidence of his sovereignty and seek to see his will accomplished here on earth as it is in heaven. We get to lean in to the will of God and the mission of God and the family of God and our own faith in the real gospel in the absolute certainty that he is so sovereign there is nothing that can ever happen that will challenge his will being accomplished here on this earth now. Beloved, this is the truth of the gospel. That regardless of the, the seeming power and authority of sin in this world, in our nation, in our city, in your own heart, that there is a God who is stronger and he loves you and he's called you and he's sovereign. Go in that peace. Amen.